This season of Hello Nature is brought to you by the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness, the ultimate expression of the legendary capability of the Outback line. In addition to its 9.5 inches of ground clearance, the Outback Wilderness is loaded with off-road ready upgrades to take you further than ever before. Adventure elevated with the Subaru Outback Wilderness. It's December 1896, winter in New York City. Major Taylor is standing inside Madison Square Garden. There's cigarette smoke everywhere in the arena. Major is holding on tight to his bicycle. The crowd is literally screaming. They're going wild. The lights are bright, and Major's heart starts racing. There are 5,000 people staring at him, and this is his first ever professional cycling race. It's a half a mile, but he's competing against famous professional cyclists he's only ever heard about. The race starts. Major's foot hits the pedal, and he starts speeding. The crowd whirs past him, and everything turns blurry. He's ahead, he's ahead, and then, just like that, he starts to cycle past Eddie Bald. Eddie is one of the greatest sprinters in the country. People call him Eddie Cannonballed because he shoots like a ball out of a cannon. But today, Major is ahead of Eddie. He's beating Eddie by almost 20 yards just as he sees the finish line. And he wins. He wins the race. Major is only 18 years old. He's a black man from Indiana living in the Jim Crow era. But he's about to beat every obstacle thrown his way and become the fastest and most famous racer in America. This is Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios and Subaru. And I'm your host, Misha Youssef. Today, I'm biking in Atlanta, the home of the Muscogee Creek and Cherokee peoples. And in this episode, we're exploring how you make nature accessible for the community that lives in a place, rather than for outsiders. I didn't know about Major Taylor until I came to Atlanta and met Nedra Deadweiler. So my name is Nedra Deadweiler. And I am the founder, owner of Civil Bikes. It's a heritage tour company, and it's always ever-evolving, as much as I am always ever-evolving. Major is one of the most accomplished cyclists in American history, and he happens to be a Black athlete. But his story has been tossed aside because he was Black. When I was traveling to the national parks last season, One of the things that came up over and over again was how history helped people feel connected to an activity, to a land, to a place. That's why stories like Major Taylor's are so important. To know that Black and brown people are not just welcome in a place, but that they have thrived here before. And Nedra Deadweiler is doing exactly that in Atlanta, Georgia. She is connecting history and nature through biking. I felt like if we could talk about our history, talk about culture, that maybe we develop a love for a place and a love for each other. That's after the break. Who knew you could learn so much about a city by spending a day biking through it? 
I'm grateful Nedra showed us some of Atlanta's most notable civil rights landmarks, like the headquarters of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the Martin Luther King Jr. National Historical Park. I wish I could send every one of you a postcard from the park. It's brimming with roses and cute crawling insects. Truly a sight to see. Which is why I'm so grateful for companies like Subaru, who prioritize preserving our parks. Subaru is the largest corporate supporter of the National Park Foundation and has donated over 70 million to organizations working to preserve our parks. That's enough to help protect 84 million acres of land filled with plants, bugs, and so much beauty, just like Atlanta's parks. If you want to learn more about how Subaru supports the parks, check out Subaru.com environment. As long as you don't think about it, you'll, you'll be fine. I know, yeah. I know. We're going to make a, uh, a right turn here. Nedra Deadweiler is a historian, and she's the founder of Civil Bikes, which is a tour company that combines all of Nedra's loves, cycling, history, and nature. Almost there. Great. She's made it her personal mission to tell people about Black history, about people like Major Taylor, and to do it through cycling. Yeah, so we have um, what we're looking at now. Nedra has loved the outdoors since she was little. So this is the South, right? Like, basically, kids go outside and play. (laughs) You don't spend your days indoors. It was like you go outside, you're there all day. So, you know, swinging from the vines, jumping across the the creek, um, playing in the water. Bats would come out, because we're in the country, and bats would come out at night, and well, as it started to get dusk, and it's just like time to go, because you're like, oh my God, these are scary. Today, she's giving us a tour of one of Atlanta's most important historic neighborhoods. So we're in what's called the Fourth Ward. And the reason why I brought us here is because we're kind of at like this intersection of religion, civic, and entrepreneur spaces. We're biking past red brick buildings. A lot of these buildings are really old. So you have some of the oldest, some of the oldest buildings in Atlanta will be in these neighborhoods because it's a lack of development. So it's like a, it's a gold mine in a sense, right? Like preservation, like, oh. So Every other about, wall is painted with a giant yeah, mural of a black civil rights leader. Like John Lewis, who said, I appeal to all of you to get into this great revolution that is sweeping this nation. Get in and stay in the streets of Arab City. Every village and hamlet of this nation until true freedom comes, until the revolution of 1776 is complete. Evelyn Gibson Lowry, Martin Luther King, we pass by his burial site. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. And Coretta Scott King, we pass by her burial site. We bike by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference headquarters. So now this is SCLC office, and you see the SCLC women's office next door. Ella Baker was the person who opened the office and who, you know, she's phenomenal in civil rights. It's cold, but it's also kind of sunny out. And I keep hoping for shade, but I realize that we haven't passed that many trees. 
There are like way fewer trees in this part of Atlanta compared to the rest. It's not, these streets aren't tree lined really. Um, the trees that were here were destroyed to put down the highway. We know that there are higher rates of asthma and other chronic illnesses because of these highways and it's largely in black communities, but it's largely something that is done by infrastructure. This is the perfect way for Nedra to show up around her city because she's been exploring nature through biking since she was a kid. My favorite bike was probably, I got maybe when I was 10 or 11. It was a blue Huffy. (laughs) Banana seat with a butterfly and a rainbow tassel. Um, It had a basket in the front. I mean, it was like total girl bike. But uh, yeah, that's probably my favorite childhood bike. Yeah, riding a bike was like everything. Let's get it. Let's do it. Nedra's family moves to Atlanta when she's seven. At first, Nedra bikes around her suburban neighborhood. She's just going around in circles, and it's fun. But as a teenager, she wants and needs to get around. Here's the thing. Atlanta is not a cyclist city, so it's hard to bike around to actually get to places. She just kind of stops biking altogether. She starts driving, commuting from one part of the city to the rest. These commutes happen on the highways in Atlanta. And the highways have a super racialized history. I-20, which is the main east-west highway in Atlanta, was built in the 1950s. At that time, a guy named William B. Hartsfeld was the mayor, and he had some super strong ideas about what I-20 was going to be. He imagined it as, quote, a boundary between the white and the black communities. So, as Nedra drives along the highways to commute from one part of the city to another, she notices... It still is racialized in terms of segregation. And not only are the highways racialized, they are bottlenecked. At the time, Atlanta was having the worst traffic in the nation, and we still have the worst traffic in the nation. All of my commutes were from the south to the north. It was always, you know, an hour in a car. One of the reasons the highways are so full of traffic is because they're poorly designed. And some of that is because the city and the government were so focused on using the highways to segregate Atlanta that they kind of forgot to actually get people from place to place efficiently. For example, there's a seven-mile road that connects I-75 and I-85, two freeways in Atlanta. It's called the Downtown Connector. Very original, I know. It runs through the center of the city. One of the parts it runs through used to be a really prosperous business district. A black business district. Black-owned mom-and-pop shops lined the streets all over this area. Guess what neighborhood this is? Sweet Auburn, the historic Fourth Ward, where we're biking with Nedra. The connector divided Sweet Auburn right in the middle. It cut the neighborhood in this weird way that made it really hard for people from outside to visit and to go to the shops. Sweet Auburn is now filled with boarded up buildings and unhoused people. And the connector didn't even do the job it was built to do. It is one of the worst hotspots for traffic delays and accidents, not just in Atlanta, but in the entire United States. And Atlanta people, they do wild things in traffic. There are folks who were using their guns because they were having, like, road rage. 
and shooting people or shooting at people on the highways. So Nedra's like, I want out of here. I was like, I want to be in a place where I can bike and I can walk and I can use public transportation. I don't want to have to drive everywhere. Nedra moves to New York City and then Seattle, and she is back on a bike, riding through the cities from place to place for fun, out to nature. Where I felt the most freedom and, like, could take the bike anywhere, it was when I lived in Seattle. Like, the environment really encouraged and beckoned. Like, I always ran into somebody else on a bike. I was never somewhere by myself, even if I did go out (laughs) to the mountains. I was never alone because there's always somebody. There was always another person, another group of people. She stays away from Atlanta for a few years, and then she decides to move back home. I mean, it's her hometown, and when she gets there, she's kind of determined to bike in her hometown. I still want to ride a bike. I mean, so I tried. I was living out in the suburbs. I tried biking into the city. It's a long freaking way. It probably took me like an hour and a half. And then it's also going on state routes, five lane traffic and high speed traffic. And even if there was a bike lane, it wouldn't matter. It just, it wasn't the safest. Nedra's committed. She stops and starts, but keeps trying to bike around Atlanta. And then she notices some changes. This new mayor gets elected, Kasim Reed, and he starts investing in bike infrastructure. 2013 and then 2014, Atlanta, there was a lot of like city building once again, building for a creative class. She notices that all these things are being built, like the Atlanta Beltline. When it's finished, the Beltline will be a 22-mile trail along Atlanta, where you can use a bike to get from place to place. It's surrounded by greenery and trees. No angry drivers with guns. The dream. But Nedra starts talking to the community, and she starts realizing that all of this infrastructure isn't really built for the community that already lives in Atlanta. It's not really for black and brown people. Instead, it's being built to bring in new people into the city. Nedra feels like it's being built for the artists, the hipsters, the creative class, often white people, gentrifiers. And she's kind of troubled by this. She asks herself, what can I do about it? Around this time, she goes on this incredible civil rights tour in Alabama, all by bus. The whole time she's thinking, this would be way more fun on a bike. I think part of it is I would have felt the wind. I would have felt like I was in the environment. And being in the environment meant that I would have been really able to touch. It's palatable. I could smell what sort of was blooming or it was, this was June. So it would have, it's like, it's seasonal, you know, trees are out. I would have actually be able to see what was going on with the nature that I couldn't see in the car that I could only see at a distance or like, you know, pieces of it. So I felt like I was part of the landscape. It's like the African-American Heritage Water Trail in Chicago. There's something about being so close to nature feeling it, smelling it, engaging with it, that allows you to connect to the land, to live its histories. So she has a super cool idea. What if she led tours of her own city's history on a bike? Black Peace Street Street, Black Wall Street is out here. 
and we'll just ride down. The story is to share what is the importance of Atlanta in the history of Black people. And I wanted an opportunity to bring people together in place. I felt like if we could talk about our history, talk about culture, talk about these things, these topics um, in place, on place, at place, that maybe we develop a love for place and a love for each other. And then we wouldn't have to have gentrification. We can learn how to coexist. Um, so it was as much as history and riding a bike and community building. That, that was the intention. But sometimes real life takes a second to catch up to our dreams. There were a number of experiences that were very positive. There have been some that are negative. And, you know, trying to make modifications iteratively so that communities aren't impacted by or triggered by tourists or individuals coming in neighborhoods. Segregation, as we have known it, was not something that was initially in the landscape. It became, as zoning became a thing, it got zoned into the landscape. So the problem lingers. For Nedra, biking is a way to connect with nature and history in Atlanta. But for a lot of the Black community here, bike lanes are an omen. They signal that gentrification is coming, that they might get displaced from their neighborhoods and their childhood homes. But there are solutions. It's possible to build bike lanes and bike infrastructure for the community for Black people in Atlanta. We had meetings before where we allowed the community to come in and have input and know what we're doing and contribute. And people were excited. They were like, wait a minute, there's going to be a group of Black people who ride together in Atlanta. I wanted to talk to Zara Alabanza from Red Bike in Green Atlanta about how to do that. Zara Alabanza also grew up outside, just like Nedra. I grew up barefoot. I was born in San Francisco, California to a Mexican Filipino mother and a African American father, but lived the first 11 years of my life on Oahu on the North Shore. Most islands is lived outside, and so I feel very fortunate to have that childhood. Um, In 1991, my mother transitioned. I was 11, and then life took a very different track. I moved to California, Southern California, with family. That looked a particular way, but that led to me being in foster care for a little bit of time in the Bay Area in San Francisco, which is, you know, a full circle thing since that's where I was born. It was an adjustment for Zara. She was used to... Running around in the streets with your shoes off and climbing trees and rolling around in the grass. And part of being outside, barefoot in nature, meant her main ride was a bike. I remember having like a coaster BMX bike where I was burning through inner tubes and attempting to do tricks. And that continued in Hawaii. That was the mode of transportation that we use for play, not noticing that it got us from place to place per se. And then when I was in college, I remember riding a bicycle, and this is in Tallahassee, Florida, which has no infrastructure for this sidewalks stop in the middle of the road. I would say that this friend, his name is Jakari, really introduced me to biking as a mode of freedom, as a mode of transportation, and as a mode of long-distance travel. Zara moves from San Francisco to Tallahassee to Chicago. You would think that, like, oh, this makes sense. It's a proper city on a grid. Let's ride a bike. 
but they had such good public transit that I never thought about it until I was at a conference. And I want to say this was around 2008, where I met a white woman, Nora Dye. And I love the story, and I tell it all the time, but she had just rode her bike, Rhonda, I think its name was, across the country. And my mind was blown. I said, who the f*** does that? Like, what? It's unheard of kind of thing. And this is in 2008, so where bike packing and touring is very popular now. Zara gets obsessed with this story. This idea that a woman can bike from place to place. And not like from the grocery store to the park, but like from city to city. It was very punk DIY culture back in the day. And it just blew me away. And I was like, well, if this white woman can do it, why can't I? She had audacity and I didn't understand why I couldn't have that audacity. At that time, she didn't see any barriers. She was like, I want to do this. I'm going to do this. She decides to move to Atlanta. It's the mid-2000s. Atlanta is considered a city in the forest, and that outdoor element was really important to me choosing to move here. And every day I get to go out and look at it, and I'm like, this is why you move to the South. Even if I am in a major city, I still have enough yard space to literally grow food and enough food that I can give away. Atlanta is really special that I can do all of that. But then she starts to look around and see that all the people biking are white. She's like, wait, what? Where are all the Black people on bikes? If you don't know, Atlanta has a huge Black population. Black people are actually the majority in the city at 48%. I know I can't be the only one. The amount of people biking in Atlanta was just so slim. It just It's not, no one moves to Atlanta and says, I'm going to ride a bike. It's extremely hilly. We're on the bottom of like the, uh, the Appalachian Mountains. And um, the infrastructure isn't there. So she's definitely not the only Black person, but she's probably the only person who moved to Atlanta and was like, I'm doing this to ride my bike. It would have been considered unsafe to bike here 11 years ago. Remember the segregated, trafficy freeways we talked about earlier? Yep. So those are the ones that Zora is talking about. And she realizes that she might feel comfortable enough to grab her bike and ride it anywhere, to ride it in mostly white spaces. But a lot of Black people don't. But I now understand, like, white people have space and time and energy to have an imagination that exceeds what we've already experienced. And so I reached out to Jenna Burton, who is the founder of Red Bike and Green. They had an Oakland chapter. And I was like, yo, I'm trying to start one in Atlanta, which is, again, 10, 11 years ago. You know, I am a learning more often how much of an overachiever I am. I came with a proposal and what programs would look like, how we would potentially raise funding. She bit. She said, go. We piecemealed it together, made a flyer for our first ride, which was April 2012. So we had meetings before where we allowed the community to come in and have input and know what we're doing and contribute. And people were excited. They were like, wait a minute. There's going to be a group of Black people who ride together in Atlanta. And all of a sudden, it's the day of the first community bike ride. Zara's wondering if anyone's even going to come. I want to say like 60 to 70 Black folks on bikes showed up. And it blew my mind. I keep kind of marveling in how I am a part of, like, history in that way, that we contributed to getting more Black folks on bike when it was not a thing, when the brands weren't behind it. It was pre, you know, 2020 and Black Lives Mattering. And we took up space that was not given to us, that we demanded, that we 
we're committing to ourselves and our health and being seen in our communities to give our communities an idea that you can take up space like this. And it was really, really, really fun. And um, we have an event every year now called Bikeiversary. But not everyone was excited about the group. Zara says she got some pushback. And surprisingly, some of that was from Black people in Atlanta. They started asking questions like, why this Black space was needed, especially pre-2020, it was unheard of. But when you realize that the biking world is just a microcosm of reality, then you realize that we do need these spaces still to this day. Um, because to experience racism while you're on a big group ride with mostly white folks is far different than experiencing racism when you're around a bunch of Black folks on bikes. You're going to handle it different. You're more inclined to feel safe, protected, and know that people aren't going to leave you in that situation by yourself, where with white groups, and I've seen it, right, where the racism is on the ride or they just don't have to take consideration for Black and brown bodies in the way that we experience the world. So they never consider that we need to think about the way this body is experiencing or perceived in the world and make sure that they're safe. But Red Bike and Green isn't just for Black people to bike together safely. I mean, that's a huge part of it. But they have a whole mission. And one of the things that they're really passionate about is improving Black communities. Bike infrastructure is a huge piece of that. You know, our communities tend to be the last to get the infrastructure. For example, in my neighborhood, um, there's a bike lane that was put up on Westview Drive in front of a church. It directly connects to the Beltline. However, there was no conversation with the church or the community about the bike lane. The tension started a year ago when the city installed the lane using a grant. The main problem is that the church didn't really get any type of community engagement for the bike lane. Jonathan Whitfield is a minister at Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. He says the bike lane made parking difficult for churchgoers, and there was something else. Most of the people feel like the bike lane are not for the people here, it's for the people to come. Wealthier people who may come with the Beltline nearby. So bike lanes already have a negative connotation in black and brown communities and in poor communities. And to put one in a neighborhood without consulting, getting the vibe of the community before, was already a bad idea. So eventually the church was like, take, take this out. And I got interviewed with our local NPR about it. Atlanta has an opportunity to broaden conversation and come up with real solutions. And taking out a bike lane is not solving anything. I think they thought I was going to tell a different story, like, oh, it's so sad that, you know, people are um, basically advocating against their interests. And I'm like, this is low-hanging fruit. If this is what makes people feel like they can have an impact on their community, then I'm all for it, even though it takes away um, a bike lane that I know that people will utilize. There is a way to do it or implement these this infrastructure that does not make people feel be fearful of their displacement or that they weren't a part of a conversation that directly impacts their community. Because you know, if you don't speak up, nobody else is going to speak up. And, you know, you fast forward, now there's an $800,000 house on my block next to a bando. That's a different story. That is the gentrification, the actual ill effects of gentrification, not so much the bike lane, but if people perceive bike lanes as problematic, then that's what's real. For, for people who don't understand, like, what is the negative connotation with bike lanes specifically in black and brown neighborhoods? You didn't have them in communities until you wanted white folks to live there, and then it became a selling point for white people to move back to the city, right? 
I mean, I can bike to downtown area in 12 minutes. You know what I mean? Like, I can get so many places. So it's just an ideal place to live. And if you can make more money with who lives here, then you will push people out. And that's exactly what's happened. I live in a community that has the highest concentration of Black urban farmers and growers and growing spaces. These are all the things that make quality of life, you know, um, high but they're in what would be perceived as a black poor neighborhood. So when you realize that you can make money off of the abandoned houses, that there's old folks living here, that we can find a way to push them out and then make a lot of money on the houses here because they're placed, again, by urban farms, by Beltline, by public transit. They get to live this great quality of life then we would want the people we care most about, white folks, to live here. And we could care less about the people who have been born and bred and lived in this community their entire lives when this infrastructure didn't exist. I'm already here and built into this community, but I'm easily displaceable because if they keep going up, I'm not going to be able to afford to live here. Bike lanes are seen as a threat, regardless if they actually contribute to gentrification, the idea is that they do. And I don't know what the current stats say, but we also forget that gentrification is not really the people moving in, it's the people who are being displaced and where they end up going. You know, at one point in time, it felt like, let's put a bike lane in, that's going to solve the problems. And bike lanes, they don't actually make people feel safer, especially if they're not protected. Why not have a conversation with the church leaders and the block leaders before bringing in bike lanes? Why not do what Zara did when starting the Atlanta chapter of Red Bike and Green? Have meetings and ask for people's thoughts. Maybe it's just about making them feel included. Or maybe they will have original ideas that can make the infrastructure actually helpful to the community. A bike lane will pop up for two blocks and then it'll disappear. Or, you know, it doesn't connect to another bike lane on another major road. Connectability is probably one of the most important things with infrastructure, because if we thought about connectability, we would think about where to put bike lanes more strategically. And so I think having bike lanes that connect to public transit is really important, whether it's a bus or a train. I think having bike lanes and infrastructure that connect to places like grocery stores or schools, like kids should be able to ride their bikes to school safely, you know, like period. I do know that connectivity has improved, though, meaning I can get off of a major train station in downtown Atlanta, and there is going to be infrastructure there for me to continue my bike ride to a next destination if I'm going in a certain direction. So walk me through kind of an ideal scenario of how to bring about or build bike lanes in a Black neighborhood. What would be the proper way to do it? I think the right way to do it is to engage the Black cycling groups with whoever is doing the policy work to have community meetings and hear the real threats and fears and concerns of community members about bike lanes coming into their community. You know, Red Bike and Green has a slogan that says it's bigger than bikes, right? We're talking about people having a certain quality of life that we all deserve, a baseline quality of life that we all deserve. Black and brown and indigenous communities should not be the last people to get infrastructure. It's not just about bike lanes. And I think this is where the concept of mobility justice comes in, being able to move through space and time safely, right? And infrastructure of any kind, whether it's sidewalks, bike lanes, protected bike lanes, more stop signs, 
um, speed humps. These are all part of infrastructure that says that anybody who's using these spaces can feel comfortable. What is really important about that is it's also bigger than bikes because people like George Floyd or Jordan Nelly are affected by the injustice of not being able to move through space and time. They've lost their life in public space because mobility justice doesn't exist. Because nobody should be dying from being on public transit or walking across the street or riding your bike or being hungry and tired and needing help. You know, we have multiple identities and abilities and we do a lot of different things. And it means that all those things kind of have to be considered when we're trying to resolve a problem. And it's really important to solve these problems with the community. Because riding a bike through your neighborhood to get from place to place is such a different way to experience your own city. To connect with your home, the nature, the people. That is extremely liberating and I think is one of the most phenomenal machines that could ever exist. To be human-powered, to be able to keep you fit, move you from place to place, to have the impact that it does on, like, climate. It's just like, what other machine that we get to control has that much impact? And it's not all just about infrastructure and transportation. Safe and well-designed bike lanes for the community are also for fun. So many Black people in Atlanta just have embraced biking because of the joy. Do you ride a bike? Um, I've been, like, very scared for a very, very long time. I don't know, it just felt intimidating, and I didn't see people of color really riding around, even in L.A. Um, and so the last, like, five years I've started riding again, which is very interesting to come to it as an adult, you know? And I ask that because I'm just like, only bike people understand how it can make you radiate and feel the mm. way we do about it. People are like, oh, it's just a bicycle. And I'm like, oh, you've never you've never really rode a bike then. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's that for me. And I think that I just want, and I know I have, but I want to continue to contribute to specifically Black folks having similar enough experiences on a bicycle that they can speak so like lovingly about what it did for their life. Like mm -hmm. it is a very transformative tool that, that we're not new to this, we're true to this. We have to make sure that our presence in bike culture stays forward facing because of the way we've impacted it. Black people have been making a difference in cycling long before Nedra and Zara. There's a rich history of black cyclists. People like Major Taylor, Catherine Knox, the Infantry Bicycle Corps. Cyclists who've been riding their bicycles to get from place to place, to compete, to experience joy. When people don't share stories of BIPOC people in nature, they make us invisible. When historians don't highlight that Black people have been here in Atlanta, in America, biking, they make Black people invisible. When our governments don't include BIPOC communities in decisions about their own cities, they make those communities invisible. If you don't know someone is there, that they've been there for generations, it's so much easier to isolate them, to displace them, to encourage forces like gentrification. Atlanta, for example, is a hub of Black excellence. It isn't just a place where Black people have lived. It's a place Black people have shaped. So building bike lanes in Atlanta without talking to and including the people who live here, it doesn't make any sense. And let's not put people of color in positions where they're desperately trying to get someone to listen and no one is listening. 
People of color shouldn't have to be the only advocates for themselves in their communities. It makes me think about the story behind Major Taylor getting into his first race. It wasn't simple, obviously. He was living in Jim Crow America. He really wanted to compete, so he went to the race promoters and asked them for a racing license. And the promoters were like, what? If a black man competes at this race, people will riot in New York City. Liberal New York City. And the promoter goes, shouldn't you be shining the shoes of gentlemen on Fifth Avenue? And Major Taylor responds with so much dignity. He says, no, I should be competing against the best racers in the world. Badass, I know. He stays persistent, and he eventually convinces the promoters that so many people will show up to see a black man race, especially if the promoters lean into racism, black versus white. The promoters are desperate for bigger audiences. I mean, who watches indoor cycling anyway? So they were like, okay, fine, 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 fine. They promote the race as black against white. And that's how Major Taylor got his license. That's how he ended up in Madison Square Garden beating some of the best racers in America. He had to fight for himself, be his own advocate. But I want to live in a world where that doesn't happen. I want to live in a world where we look out for people of color, for communities of color, where we build cities to include the people who live there. No decisions for the people without them. When we do listen to communities of color, the people who have lived in these places for generations, they actually know what needs to happen. They know how to best improve their own communities. They have great ideas. Let's not push people of color to fight for themselves and their communities alone. And let's preserve their legacy, tours and statues and plaques and parks. Let's build safe spaces so that the people who live in the community can experience the new infrastructure safely. Things like bike lanes. Because nature and green spaces aren't just for white people. The best things in our cities aren't just for white people. Activities like biking aren't just for white people. There are long and rich histories of black and icons of color paving the path for all of us. People like Major Taylor. People who connect history to the present moment. People who remind Nedra and Zara that they are standing on the shoulders of giants. That they are not alone. You just feel like you're a part of something. That when they get on their bikes and they pedal, when they zip past trees and buildings and rivers, they're taking the baton and continuing the story. You know, I become the main character in the movie that I love. I remember recently writing Kind of in the evening, going down a hill, the wind was hitting my skin. It wasn't a busy street, so maybe I was a little less responsible. <laughs> but I was like, oh, I'm the person in the movies with my hands wide open going down a hill. I am literally living my best life. And that's what bicycles do. Atlanta being a city in the forest mean that you could look up and be like, I did not know I was in a major city. And that is really beautiful. This episode is brought to you by Subaru. Exploring nature in cities across the U.S. has been an unforgettable adventure. 
From hiking the secret stairs in LA to camping on the outskirts of Chicago, none of it would have been possible without my 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness, the ultimate enabler for your outdoor adventure. Standard, symmetrical, all-wheel drive, off-road tires, and 9.5 inches of ground clearance, plus a comfy and water-repellent interior, are among just a few of the features that make the Outback Wilderness the ideal vehicle when you're gearing up and heading out. Learn more about the Subaru Outback Wilderness at Subaru.com slash wilderness. Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios is brought to you by Subaru. It's produced by Dustlight Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Misha Youssef. Stephanie Cohn is the senior producer. This episode was written by me and Stephanie Cohn. It was sound designed by Elizabeth Nakano. Jules Bradley and Valeria Alarcone provided additional production help throughout the season. Valentino Rivera is the senior engineer. Carly Bond is the composer. Elizabeth Goodspeed is our art director and designer and did our artwork for the series. The illustrations on the artwork are by Joshua Ariza. From REI Co-op Studios, executive producers are Jenny Barber, Joe Crosby, and Hannah Boyd.